the Therapy in Action podcast with your hosts, Andrew Bort and Nick Jaworski. Research evidence-based practice and the tools and techniques to use that deliver the best outcomes for every patient, every time. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Therapy in Action podcast. I am your host, Andrew Bort, here with Nick Jaworski. And today we have a fantastic show for you. We're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that is deliberate practice. Actually, we're going to break this episode into two parts. Uh, The first part, we're going to talk about deliberate practice when it comes to improving clinical delivery and the therapist skill overall. And in the second follow-up episode, we're going to talk about what deliberate practice looks like for patients while in therapy. I'm going to start off with an introduction by John Fredrickson, who's on the faculty of the Washington School of Psychiatry. He also teaches in Warsaw and in Stockholm, and he is trained therapists in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Poland, India, Australia, and the U.S. He is the author of over 40 published papers and three books, Co-Creating Change, Effective Dynamic Therapy Techniques, Psychodynamic Therapy learning to listen from multiple perspectives and the lies we tell ourselves. Okay, so this is John's description of deliberate practice. When we practice, we rehearse a behavior or action repeatedly in order to master it. As we say in the music field, practice makes perfect. Whether it's a sport, an art, or a craft, everyone has to practice certain skills to develop expertise. So the question becomes, How do we need to practice in order to become expert? We need to practice frequently. In music, that means about three hours a day, every day. We need to get expert feedback on our performance. In music, each week, your music teacher listens to you play exercises you agreed to work on to develop your current skill level. In sports, your coach observes your moves in every practice and reviews your movies on a video after every game. In therapy, ideally, You find a good supervisor who observes videotapes of your work with a patient in every week over the course of the year. But if you rely only on your opinion or a book, your practice will be ineffective or even harmful. You will learn to reinforce bad habits. If we don't practice enough, we won't master the exercises and we will forget what we've learned. That is why mastery requires us to practice often to make sure we gain the skills and mastery we want. Musicians practice a minimum of three hours a day and often much more. Basketball players, think Michael Jordan, practice for up to six hours a day, varying the skills they are working on. As a therapist, how often you are setting time aside to develop your skills, analyze your video transcripts, watch your videotape sessions, or going to supervision. Did you know that the vast majority of therapists stop getting expert feedback from a supervisor once they are licensed? Could this be the reason that the effectiveness has not changed substantially over the past 50 years? Okay, and this part right here, this is the the crux of what he has to say. Here's the crux of what he has to say. Kay Anders Erickson proposes that the differences between expert performers and normal adults reflect a lifelong period of deliberate effort to improve performance in a specific domain. It's not just how much we practice a particular skill, but how we practice it. Experts in any field break down complex skills into small chunks. Then they practice those small skills daily, often reviewed by a coach, teacher, or instructor. We see this with scales in music, serves in tennis, shots in basketball. 
In all these fields, deliberate practice involves continual repetition of ever more complex skills at more challenging levels to achieve mastery. So what do you think of that intro, Nick? I absolutely love that intro. I think there's so much to unpack in that that entire introduction, right? The, The importance or the work that we do and what we see, you know, when we're observing sessions and working with therapists is it's often a a shift for them because a lot of people think that, Hey, I'm doing the thing, right. I'm going and I'm I'm giving therapy, right. I'm talking to patients. They think that that constitutes practice and experience, but that's not correct, right. Just playing basketball doesn't make us better basketball players for the most part, right. There's a, there's a certain maybe level that we can get to if we just go and play, we're, by default, going to get a little bit better because we've never played before. But most people just hit a plateau and they do that very quickly. And then they're just an average basketball player forever, right? How do you get into the NBA? You have to really, really practice. And it's the same for therapy. You can't just be delivering the practice and assume that you're going to get better. You have to be very deliberate in what you're trying to do. And so I think that's the first thing that I'd like to explore is, is how do we build that intentionality into our practice so that we could be confident that we're actually becoming better every session. So from your perspective, Andrew, like what do you, what have you seen or what do you think is important in terms of that deliberate practice? I would have to say facilitation skills overall, time management, increasing patient talk time, and actually setting up practice opportunities for patients, collaborative work, pair work, small group work. Those are the areas that while I'm observing, I see that therapists need the most help. And that makes sense because if you think about how group therapy has been delivered over the past 50 years, it's quite normal. The expectation was to do this round robin, turn and talk. I mean, even if you look on YouTube, all of the examples that you'll see, you imagine that if a company or a facility is going to put a video of what they do on YouTube, it's the best that they've got. <laughs> True. Always the same thing. It's always one person talking at a time. And then we've talked on previous episodes that, you know, just this didactic knowledge transfer, which we know from the research that passive learning activities, listening to someone talk, watching a video without a focus task attached, these are not the ways to effectively acquire, retain, and use that information when you need it, right? There's a difference between understanding what the process of incremental goal setting is and actually being able to do it. And the same goes with routines. The same goes with assertive communication, um, using I statements, any of the recovery capital coping skills that we hope patients leave treatment with. Yeah, So what I think was really important that you mentioned there was a number of discrete skills, and that's often what we're seeing missing. And so when we want to become better at anything, therapy or any other field of our lives, we have to have intentional practice around these discrete skill sets. And so what's really helpful, like uh, Fredrickson mentioned, was having video feedback, right, is great if you can tape yourselves. Getting patient feedback is super important. And I think it's an avenue that a lot of uh, therapists kind of miss out on, to be quite frank. Um, You should always be collecting feedback from your patients and asking, like, is this helping you? How is it helping you? What's helping you to really understand what's working or not working for them? And on the supervision side, I think that's also really important because, as you mentioned, most therapy is not very effectively modeled. 
you know, this one going around the room, round and round talk is a very, very ineffective delivery method for group therapy. But also we know from the research that if you're talking most of the time in an individual session, that's also ineffective, right? The patient has to be, um, they have to be active in their own therapy and they should be talking at least 50% of the session, if not more, for it to be really helpful for them. And so when we look at supervision, a lot of the times the supervisors don't give effective feedback, right? They're not giving you concrete advice on skills. So it's really important that you find a supervisor that's actually able to give you this kind of discrete feedback so that it's helpful for you so you can action on it. And so they have to understand it too. And because a lot of people haven't been trained on it, they're they're unable to make those assumptions. And so, you know, at the Institute, that's one of the things that the trainers really focus on is helping with these discrete skills. And th- so I think it'd be helpful for us to dig into a couple of those maybe as an examples. Um, but you mentioned like talk time, for example. So that's an easy one, right? It's an easy one to track. It's an easy one to monitor. But what are your thoughts around digging into some of those discrete skills like talk time? How how should a therapist go and try to make sure they're improving some some individual skill like that? Okay, well, if we're going to focus on talk time specifically, I, I first I want to you know just mention that therapists tend to highly overestimate the amount of time that their patients are talking. And especially when we're looking at group therapy. So when I'm an observer in group therapy, and oftentimes, you know, when we first go into a facility, I'll want the clinical director or whoever will be expected to continue the observations, because unfortunately, you know, there are facilities where people just never get observed. I mean, Fredrickson mentioned that, that sometimes after you get your license, that's when the feedback stops. And unlike the basketball example you gave, the research actually suggests, I mean, this is Goldberg et al. I'm Bruce Wampold and Scott Miller, they were in this study as well. Therapists actually decline in skill over time. Anytime I mention research, because this podcast is all about it, you can find access to the research in the show notes. But coming back to the talk time again. So when I go into a facility, I will sit there the first time we do an observation that benchmark to kind of establish where we are, I'll sit there with the clinical director or whoever will be expected to continue the observations. And I have my stopwatch out. And so what I do is throughout the therapy session, I am actually timing how often patients are talking. And what I found is, let's say over the course of an hour, Uh, Maybe patients will be talking anywhere between, you know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, sometimes it's up to 30 minutes. But again, there's only one patient talking at a time. So we have to divide that time by the number of patients in the room, which is 10 to 12. And it is not uncommon at all for over the course of an hour, patients to get between 50 seconds and at maximum two minutes of talk time per patient. And frankly, that's just, that's just unacceptable. And from the learning point of view, from the active learning point of view, we need to get them talking much, much more. And I did mention uh, research. So we have multiple studies here that show that patient talk time is an important factor in outcomes. So for example, Cliv Lahan in 2018 uh, found that the amount of client talk time was positively associated with therapeutic alliance and treatment outcomes. Orlinsky in 1994 found that patients who talked more in therapy tended to have better outcomes. Levitt in 2016 found dialogue-based interventions that emphasize patient talk time were effective in reducing symptoms of post-traumatic stress. 
Miller found that increased positive change talk led to reduction in resistant behaviors and improved outcomes. And Trechutsky, I probably butchered that, 2007 found both patient and therapist involvement, including patient talk time, were related to treatment outcomes in psychotherapy with chronic depression. So patients with chronic depression got better the more they talked. Positive change talk is associated with improved outcomes. So it's really, really important that we get that talk time up. And the feedback that I would give as a presenter is just looking at situations, looking at practical times where let's say the clinician is using a fantastic open-ended question. It could be, how does uh, self-care connect to your personal recovery? So if we're going to ask that one person at a time, it'll take 45, 50 minutes to get around the room. Otherwise, you could just say, turn to the person next to you, discuss this question. And now every single patient in the room is actively engaged in a conversation. They're not just waiting for their turn to speak. They're not zoning out, which we know happens if you're not actively involved in a dialogue. And we're increasing the patient talk time for everyone in the room. So that's the really simple feedback that I would give as an observer. And of course, as the clinician gets more comfortable in the skills of facilitation, these individual skills you were talking about, we would increase the complexity a little bit to start doing more skills practice, the interleaving skills practice at the same time. And that would be something like a, a statement walk where if they agree with the question, they go to the left. If they don't, they go to the right. And then they can try to convince the other side to join them. So there we're also working on our assertive communication skills and building empathy for others' point of view at the same time. Yeah. So I think what would be helpful for therapists listening to really dig into is some of these discrete additional skills working with getting the patient talking more. And most of the time, if we're doing things to get the patient talking more, that is also actions that are helping build the therapeutic alliance, which we know is of critical importance to the patient's success. So some things that any therapist can look at when they're trying to intentionally improve their own skills are things like talk turns. So how often are they taking control of the conversation versus the patients taking ownership of the conversation? In an individual session, this is a little bit easier. And so, you know, maybe we can dig into it later in the podcast. In a group therapy session, as you're talking about, it's much harder, right? Because we have to make sure that we're maximizing everyone's talk time, not just one person's. Um, so individual sessions are a little bit easier, but how are we passing the conversation to them? And then how are we keeping them focused on their issues? Because what we don't want is a, a random tangential conversation, right? Or, or even sometimes you know, a pity party, you know, if we're going too far down a negative path, because as Miller points out, it needs to be positive change talk. It can't be negative change talk because then we're just reinforcing um, negative thought patterns and negative habits. So as a therapist, how are we engaging the patient to have positive conversations, look at solutions-oriented, look at future-oriented discussions is really important in the talk turns. And so some of the other things that we can do are like affirmative statements or validating statements. How are we identifying when the patient has positive change talk that is solution-oriented? And then how do we reinforce that you know, through our language? And not just the language that we're using, but the body language that we're using has to be very intentional. It has to be clear to the patient in the room or patients in the room that we're open, that we're there to help them. And so if our body language is closed, then 
we're not going to be able to build that alliance as much and they're not going to open and share. Um, Open-ended questions is a big one and you think it sounds simple, but you'll notice sometimes when we're observing groups that there are no questions being asked or the questions are yes, no questions. So it doesn't encourage the patients to really open and explore. And so then we're not able as therapists to understand what's working for the patient, what's not working for them, how they're thinking about things. We really want to get those expansive answers so that we can understand what's working, what's not working. Um, and that helps us identify the patient buy-in, right? Is the patient, why does the patient want to be here? And are we helping them with their goals is super, super important. And we can't know that unless we're we're really getting it in the patient's own words. We can't make assumptions about why the patient's there. Um, we have to know what they want and are we helping them along that path? And if we have ideas about things that maybe they should be working on that they haven't identified yet, well, we have to help them see that, right? We can't just tell them they're like, well, I think you should be working on this. You know, or, you know, let's say we've identified that alcohol is problematic in the person's life. We can't just say, hey, you know, you're here because you're trying to fix your relationship with your wife, but I think you have an alcohol problem. The patient's going to shut down, right? So what we can do is we can explore through open-ended questions. Well, tell me about this alcohol use and you know, have you ever seen it cause problems in your relationship with your spouse? And by starting to explore that, then we can start helping the patient identify if there are issues there that should be addressed that are then helping them solve their own problem that they came to us with. And so maybe from our experience, we know that, you know, helping out with the alcohol use is going to be beneficial, but we have to get them to see it. And so identifying buy-in or these open-ended questions or the way that we're kind of affirming some of the things that they tell us about their problems with the relationship with use is going to be really, really helpful. And then I think a final thing that's an easy one that often we miss as an opportunity, I think, is homework. The research is really, really clear that homework is super beneficial for patients. And this obviously goes back to deliberate practice. And as you know, Andrew mentioned, we'll probably do another episode on it just for patients, but the patients have to be practicing these skills. So if we're giving them a skill like incremental goal setting or meditation or assertive communication, we have to have them practice it just as much as we have to practice the therapeutic delivery for them to get better. Um, so assigning homework and being intentional about that and identifying for the patients what's going to be the most effective skills for them to practice as well is going to be really helpful. Yeah, you hit on a couple points there. Um, so in order to increase that patient talk time, there are a number of micro skills, if you will, that are involved in doing that. You know, one of them is the open-ended question that those kind of questions, those elicitation techniques, and also concept checking techniques, if you're if you really want to understand where the patient's thinking is on a particular topic, that that does take some skill. So we encourage therapists to think about what some sticking points might be in advance and kind of come up with some of those questions through our training. Like if you want to take I statements, for example, a, a good way to to check. If patients really understand, of course, we always say, don't ask, do you understand? Nobody wants to be the only person in the room that raises their hand and says they don't get it. But even sometimes patients think they do understand something. And so they'll confidently say, oh, yes, I get it. But, you know, we know that the human brain will start forming patterns immediately. And we don't want them to start building a bad foundation if they, if they don't get it from the beginning. And so a couple different ways that we can really test to see where patients are is through opposite. So using a good or bad example. So it's something like, I think 
that you act like a moron. Is that a good or a bad example of an I statement? Or you can do comparing and contrasting, giving them two different options and saying, hey, which one of these do you think would be more appropriate to use? You can ask them target specific questions. Who does this put in control of our emotions? Do, you know, do we want that? And then have the patient tell you yes or no or why. Specific questions related to technique, like can you use absolutes in an I statement? Can you use words like always, never, things like that. And if they say, you know, yes or no, have them give you an example, you know, tell me more is one of the strongest phrases that you can use in therapy, right? If you want someone to expand, tell me more. What do you mean by that? Can you give me a little bit more information or actually having them do it in practice? Like, can you restructure this? But when we go, when we talk about the open-ended questions and the elicitation, it does a lot more for us than just get the patients talking, right? It, it checks that prior knowledge. It allows the therapist, the clinician to address any misconceptions early on. Now, another one that you mentioned was homework. So homework is fantastic. And again, the goal is for patients to be able to do something once they leave the therapy space, right? The therapist does not go with them, does not hold their hand through the process. The scaffolding is, is there, the, that extra help and support that the clinician can give while in therapy, that is, the intention is for that to be removed, right? We want them to be, we want the patients to be autonomous and to be able to, to do these skills and understand this on their own once they leave. Giving them practice opportunities in between sessions is very, very valuable. And to bring back something that you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show, getting that feedback from patients the next time they come in, how did it go? How many negative thoughts did you catch yourself and have to restructure this week, right? Getting that hard data that lets the therapist know, you know, is this effective? Do they still need help? Are they mastering this skill? Where on the continuum are they? And, you know, we know that according to neuroscience, the retrieval practice is one of the strongest ways to solidify those neural pathways and to really harden them. So they become those unconscious automated processes, which we want patients to be able to do. We want them to go right into deep breathing when they get angry, not stopping and thinking about what to do. We want them to eventually be able to catch those negative thoughts immediately and know exactly how to restructure them so they become those positive thought patterns and behaviors. And a great way to do that is that intermittent practice in between. But the same thing goes for therapists who are delivering therapy, right? And that's what's so great about the analyzing videotapes or, you know, listening to those audio recordings. You can really catch errors that you made or, or maybe just something that you could have done better that you might not if you're just relying on memory on your own. Because, you know, we all know that the, the memory can be quite faulty from time to time. Yeah. And so I think what we say is just focus on a couple skills at a time. You're really just doing maybe one to three and three maximum that you want to be really intentional about improving. Do I want to get better at creating more talk turns for patients? Do I want to get better at more open-ended questions? Do I want to get better at my body language? Um, do I want to get better at creating prediction errors for patients when they're working through their own problems? You know, what are the concrete skills that I'm working on? Focus on those, just those every session and make sure that you get really good at it and then observe it, right? Whether you've got a, someone observing you, whether you're getting patient feedback, whether you're videotaping, really look at that. And, you know, it could take could take three months, you know, or more before you get really, start to get really proficient at a particular skill. 
But, you know, we recommend really focusing on that for a long period of time before moving on to the next one. Because if you're trying to do too many things at once, uh, it's just like if you're practicing basketball, right? I'm not going to practice every single skill all at the same time. One day I'm going to do dribbling. I'm going to focus on dribbling for a while, right? Then another day I'll do free throws. Um, so that deliberate practice is is very deliberate. And the way that we practice it, the how of it, as Fredrickson mentioned, um, in addition to the what. Yeah, that actually is not just our opinion. That's grounded in research as well. Uh, it's called the zone of proximal development. So you really shouldn't try to do too much. In fact, in our training and when we're doing observations and feedback, we actually only focus on one to two things to improve, at, at, no matter how many we see throughout the session. Because if, if we're giving the therapist or if you're even you're giving yourself too much uh, that's too far away out of reach, then it's just going to produce, you know, high anxiety. You have to make sure that in any situation, there is that scaffolding, as you said, that zone of proximal development. And so we always say it's like a plus one, right? Where is the patient at? Or if we're looking at therapist training, where's the therapist at? And how do we raise the difficulty level? Just one above that. Because incremental. Exactly. Because otherwise what happens is if you have a high challenge or a high difficulty environment, and a low skill in the example of either the patient or the therapist, then you get high anxiety, right? So high challenge with low skill means high anxiety. And patients already have a problem with anxiety most of the time. So the last thing that we want to do is create a high anxiety environment. We want some anxiety, right? There's going to be some stress because it's difficult. It's challenging. We're doing something new. We're learning and so we have to practice and we have to step outside of our comfort zones to do that. That's how growth happens, but it has to be incremental. And so what we want to do is if we have a high challenge environment, they have to have high skill. If they're at a low skill level, then we need a low challenge environment, right? And that I plus one. So really, really important to always just make sure we're incremental in what we're expecting. And that's also one of the values of obviously hearing the patients talk all the time, because then we know where they're at. If we're not observing them practice a skill, if we're not listening to where what they're telling us about their own abilities or their own understanding, then we're not going to know what that plus one is. We might be shooting for the moon and the patient's way down, you know, still at the beginning um, in terms of the stepladder of a particular skill. So super important. I, I think that was a great point that you brought up there. Right. And there is a, a converse to that also, which is if it is high skill and low challenge, then the person's going to be disinterested or disengaged. So again, another challenge for the therapist is how do we set up these sessions for our patients? So we're meeting the needs of everyone in the room. And one way that we all often explain to do that is through the collaborative work, the pair work or the small group work, because patients will help each other uh, fill in those gaps. And so again, this is another uh, set skill within facilitation as a whole. So after you've mastered increasing that patient talk time, maybe you can start working on how do I set up learning opportunities, growth opportunities, so patients can help each other. And then how would we 
how would we group patients, right? Because within your within your groups, you're going to have people of various reading levels. You're going to have some people who have been in treatment three or four times, five times even, uh, with patients who are just entering for the first time. So how you group them does make a difference, right? Do you want to put someone who's brand new with someone who's been there for a while? Uh, do you want to put the people who are, are veterans together and you just work with the, the brand new people, uh, more hands-on, provide more scaffolding? I mean, the situation will be different. Your groups will always be different, but those are things that you can consciously uh, keep in mind and set your patients up for success because they will help each other fill in those gaps. Yeah, it's really important if you've got outcomes tracking, if you're using like an outcomes tracking software where patients are reporting anxiety levels or mood or suicidality or whatever you wanna be tracking, that's the most helpful. But at the very least, we just wanna be looking to see how the patients are responding. And so are we seeing anxiety levels super high? Or are we seeing high levels of boredom where patients are disengaged? Then looking at that and being deliberate, right? We're all talking about deliberate practice here. What did we do that didn't work for the patients in the room? Why does everyone have high anxiety right now? Did I create too much of a challenging environment? Did I not provide enough background for them to understand or enough practice at a lower level so that they were comfortable with it? Or why is everyone bored? Am I doing something that everyone already knows? They're able to do well. Um, am I not being engaging? Is there something about this topic that is just not appealing to patients, right? I have to really look and look at the patients and see how are they responding to it? And then what can I change? Because what I always say is, if one person's struggling here or there, then I need to provide targeted support to that individual. But if the majority or even more than half of patients are having a problem, whether it's disengagement or high anxiety or resistance, um, that's that's on me facilitating, right? Something I'm doing something wrong. And so I want to really be critical of myself and examine and then try to figure it out. And then I'm going to practice things. We're going to go in and say, okay, I'm going to try this differently with the next group, or I'm going to try this differently with the next session, whatever it is, to see if I can get a different result, trying different things. And then eventually I want to make notes of that so that I can become proficient in whatever the gap was that I've identified. I think that's a fantastic point. And those questions that you're asking yourself, looking at the the group as a whole are, are critically important. And I understand why people don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. It really is. And, you know, I've been a facilitator for over 15 years. And I've told this story before when I'm making the argument for measurement in general. But I thought I was fantastic. It's like everybody gave me good feedback. They seemed to enjoy having me as a facilitator. Outcomes or the scores were okay. You know, they were good enough, maybe a little bit better. But once I started really digging down, I realized I was letting a significant amount of my population down. And then I had to ask myself, well, maybe I'm not as good as I, I, I think I am, or at least let me bring back you know, my core value, my core mission to help everyone. What can I change to, to make that happen? And it's funny that you even bring that up because with outcomes tracking, Wampold and Miller, when they dug down into this, they found that therapists actively checks the, the outcomes tracking from their patients. It helps patients on the individual level, but it doesn't help the therapists overall. And one of the things that Scott Miller said that I really liked, Miller talked about being a new therapist and he was so relieved when a program in Milwaukee told him what to do and how to work. And, you know, he gained confidence and he felt great about himself. And that is until 
until dot, 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 you know, the independent Raiders came in and the reality set in. He wasn't as effective as he thought. And so it is super important that we have that observation and that feedback from someone who can help us get better. And again, I'm going to quote Miller again, because he says, one of the unfortunate big lies in our field is that you have to have somebody that does for a living exactly what you're doing. Uh, and that, that maybe they've seen their own clients so they can coach you to expertise. But actually what they need is for someone who sees the areas where they fall short. And so who is observing you really does make a difference, but it, it, it doesn't just mean somebody who's been doing something for 30 years. You know, as someone who has been delivering feedback for 30 years, I've heard it all too many times. Like, but I've been doing this for, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. It's like, yikes, you've been doing it this way for 30 years. That, that doesn't necessarily equal expertise. Just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't, by default, make it the best way. And, you know, we've made this argument before with the delivery of group therapy. It's been delivered this round robin, one person talking at a time style for 50 years. That doesn't make it the best way, right? And so you need to hear differing point of views. You need to have um, the most relevant and new research, things like we mentioned about the, the talk time, and you need someone who's going to challenge you to help you get better. Again, not creating too much high stress, too much anxiety, but delivering things in a way that makes sense and incremental goal setting, right? So for the next session, we're, we want to work on this individual skill, or uh, maybe at most these two things we want to see a little bit of improvement in. And as those get stronger, we'll start to we'll start to introduce other skills that we can work on. But again, the, the goal here is to be the most effective as your job as possible. And the way to do that is through observation and feedback, even if you don't always like it. Yeah, it's definitely uncomfortable, you know, uh, when you're looking at your results. And I think maybe wrapping this up and then also bringing it back to the beginning is the importance around objective. What do we want the patients to accomplish? And more importantly, what do the patients want to accomplish themselves? Are they trying to stop drinking? Are they trying to build a better relationship with their spouse? Do they want to stop having panic attacks? Are they trying to reduce OCD behavior? What is the goal of the patient? And then are we helping them accomplish that? Because something that you said that I loved, and I, we see this all the time, is you'll go into a session and sometimes the patients love the therapist. They're great. And you talk to, you know, you look at the therapeutic alliance and it's phenomenal because all the patients love the therapist, but why? Because the therapist is really nice or maybe the therapist is really funny. And so, I mean, I've watched sessions where the, the therapist just talked and told jokes 95% of the session, right? And the patients loved it. They thought it was great, but they weren't making any progress on their goals of, of why they were in that room. They just really liked the fact that it was a nice therapist who was really funny. And so that's problematic. You can think you're great. It's like, oh, great. Look, I have this great therapy to clients. The patients love me. But are they progressing on the goals of why they're actually in that room with you? That's of critical importance. And so making sure that you're getting feedback specifically on those items is what's going to help you improve as a therapist. And feedback in general is its own skill set. You know, I know we have probably some clinical directors or people at least who who deliver feedback to clinicians in some role who are who are listening and it definitely can be a challenge and you know one thing over my past experience is i always start with how do you feel that went and 
consistent as gravity. I'm telling you, when the person comes back and says, oh, it was fantastic. I can already tell you that's not going to be a positive conversation. But people who are naturally self-reflective and say, well, you know, I, I could have been a lot better. I always have good news for them. So it really, I don't know if you've noticed the same thing or not, but the more confident in one's own performance people are, the generally the more difficult it is to give them feedback. But also there's usually the most areas of opportunity because the people who are generally more self-reflective, they're already kind of doing these things. They're already analyzing, you know, what didn't go so well in that session and, you know, how can I make it better? So that's, you know, an important part of deliberate practice is, you know, reflection on one's own performance. And so the people who are naturally doing it already tend to tend to be doing better than they think. And the people who are, I want to say overconfident that they're fantastic those are the those are usually the ones that have the most room for improvement. Yeah, we have to have some humility in the process, and that's really important. What we always say is right have two at least two positive things, things that you think you did really well, and then two things that you think you should improve. You should never walk out of a session and say oh, that was great. Well, what was great? I need to know concretely what those things were, and there's always room for improvement. And so we should always be able to identify in ourselves. You know, sometimes, like you said. In the therapy world, people can be uncomfortable giving feedback, which is interesting because that's really a lot of what we're doing is giving patients feedback all the time. Uh, but, you know, when we're having therapists critique each other, there is this tendency where they want to be super nice and they don't want to be critical. And, and we're not helping people. We're not helping people grow for saying, hey, oh, that was great. You're perfect. You don't need to change anything. You're not helping your fellow therapist at that point. You're you're actually just not only you're not helping them, but you're not helping the patients that they're seeing because you're not helping them get better. So we really want to be good at that skill. And you're not saying that someone's doing something that they're bad, right? We don't say, hey, look, you're a bad therapist, right? Just like we don't say you're a good therapist because that's just not helpful. I have to know what's good, what's not working. And so just be specific, talking about the actions, talking about the skills and the behaviors, not talking about the person is of critical importance, obviously, but we have to be giving that feedback. That feedback is so important to help us learn to grow and to get better. Completely agree. Well, we did get through a lot today. I really hope all of our listeners do join us for the next episode because we are going to give actual patient scenarios from situations that we've seen in therapy when we're observing across the country. And we're going to identify what skills would generally help those patients the most if they were in that moment. And we're going to talk about what deliberate practice will look like for each of those activities. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to see you next time. Thanks, everyone.